The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with a longtime friend, but, uh, you know, again, virtual friend. Kevin and I have met online, we have chatted multiple times. Uh, Kevin Jans is the president of Skyway Acquisition and the host of the Contracting Officers Podcast. Kevin, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Great to be back. Uh, it's nice to have a fellow English graduate on the uh, <laughs> podcast because we ended up uh, somehow in, in this uh, wonderful community of government contracting. So give a little background on how you got here and when you started, why you started Skyway and the podcast. So take it away. So she's way back in the last century (laughs) in the nineties. I started as a a copper cap contracting officer and contract specialist back then. And then fast forward through a couple different bases, a whole bunch of experience as a contracting officer about halfway through my career. So 16 years on the government side, I realized that there was a lot of stuff that folks on the industry side didn't know about how contracting worked. They didn't understand like, what was the contracting officer thinking? Like, I'm not trying to make your life miserable. This just is, this is a process I have to go through, et cetera. Well, if that's true, then, then the opposite is true. There's got to be lots of stuff government folks don't know that industry knows, and they're just not communicating. So with a four-year-old and a six-year-old, uh, back in, uh, I guess it was 2011, I had the idea of, you know what? Let's go change the world. So I started Skyway Acquisition, and Skyway is named after the bridge, the, the Skyway's Sunshine Skyway Bridge down here in Tampa. My last position as a contracting officer was at McDill Air Force Base, so I started my business in, in uh, Florida. And so the Skyway Bridge was to be a bridge between government and industry. That's the premise behind what we ah, do, right? Okay, so so cool. both sides understand each other. And, and here we are, well, I'll do the math, 13 years later, it's still that, that principle of crossing, basically bridging the gap between the government thinks the industry's nuts, industry thinks the government's nuts. Most of the time, that's, it's a lack of context. And so now that we've been on both sides, that's what we do. And so we started the podcast in 2014, which, you know, I'm coming up on 10 years ago to, to be a tool to kind of help close that gap did a podcast where that we could scale and like help more people. <laughs> and so 445 episodes later, here we are. 445 episodes, dude. So you were relatively early in podcasting as well. Yeah. It was an idea that would be able to, in addition to the consulting and the training and all that stuff, I thought this is a great way to really help a lot of people. And it was crickets for, I don't know, the first couple hundred episodes. But I said, if we do this 50 times and nobody notices, it's a bad idea. And it like episode 40, Somebody called and said, so I like your podcast. And then it was, I think it was probably episode 200 before we got our first customer out of it. So it's a long game. <laughs> we have to like um, doing it. Can you really track it to the first customer then? Because, you know, I've been on federal news radio, by the way, uh, for those listening, this is episode one of my 18th year on federal news network. So, I mean, technically we were an early podcast, yes. but you know, 10 years ago, people weren't doing much of it either there wasn't the podcasting universe was commercial stuff not government stuff correct i did my uh, my ted talk on it's called why the micro niche is mighty and my point was we were able to reach our micro niche of government contracting people 
through podcasts. That was the whole point of the TED Talk. And that's really why I like podcasting in general is it's so you can be crazy specific and still have an audience. Whereas if this were designed to be more general and reach a, a, a huge mass audience, mm-hmm. it'd fail miserably. Yeah, that's like uh, Chris Anderson's book, The Long Tail, you know, because you of the, the web, you know, you can find an audience for virtually anything. Exactly. Um, and they're there. And that goes back to my point. How do you know it was episode 200 before you got your first customer out of this? Because by then, so many people knew about your podcast. Um, I was telling people to listen to it probably about 100 episodes in, because that's when I found out. I've been writing for this market since 1990. I have no idea where people come from if they come in now. Have you been reading me for 40 years? You know, have have you been listening to me for 18 years? Uh, or did somebody just say, go talk to that Amtower guy? Um, <laughs> so my guess is that, you know, your your show has had more drag on pulling in people for you than you might imagine. Yeah, that's probably true. I, I think the, the way to, better way to say that, the first person that told me <laughs> they actually uh, contact us because of our podcast was a couple a couple hundred episodes in. Yeah. Okay. So you have a company, you have the podcast. You are by all reports and from my personal experience, an expert in the world of proposals and, uh, uh, you know, from now from both sides, right? Yeah. So, um, Let's get into some do's and don'ts, and you can start with your ethos, pathos, logo, and then get into the proposal. So take take us back to Aristotle, dude. <laughs> so this is a one of those things I figured out again, having had an English degree. This is one of those things I figured out is in proposals, and you might not know it, um, because we've touched proposals from both sides. I mean, we we actually serve government and industry. Government folks will come to us because they want to understand. Give me the contracting officer's point of view, having been one on what industry is thinking. And then likewise, folks on the industry side will come to us because they want to know what's the government thinking, right? And this is a really good way to, to kind of frame how the communication can happen. And so way back, what, 2,300 years ago, right, Aristotle came up with this concept, the three elements of persuasive appeals. That's the language, right? But it's ethos, pathos, and logos. And so the simplest way to think of this is that ethos, that's your credibility, your character, like your, your authority as to the evaluator. Like if you're writing a proposal, they got to know that, can you do the work, right? Do you have credibility? The pathos, that's more emotion. That's why do they like you? How do they feel about you? Like, what's your reputation? Like, is, is, is your proposal compelling or is it just compliant? Like, why, why do I care? Like, you got to elicit some kind of emotion. And then logos is, is logic, right? That's where you get into things like infographics, feature and benefit tables, you know, meatball charts. Give me data that shows me you actually have done this. Now I want to see is your proposal compliant. Now, the fun part about this, well, I don't know, I think it's fun, is how you apply it. Because one could argue that the ethos, again, that's your credibility. The pathos is how do you feel about them? And the logos is, is the, the evidence you can do it. The order of them is negotiable. Knowing your customer is critical. You may know your customer is much more concerned about the data first. Show me you can do this. In that case, you give them the logos first. Give them the logic. Show them you can actually do it because they already know who you are because you say, let's say you're incumbent or you've been targeting or pick a reason that they know who you are, right? Then you can put a back seat to how they feel about your, your reputation, et cetera. Then you get into the, the, the character piece of 
yes, we have a team, et cetera. But having this idea behind what your, how your proposal is mapped out of what credibility do you have? How do they feel about you? And show me you actually can do the work. Show me some data. Every proposal that I evaluated as a contracting officer, I didn't realize it at the time, <laughs> but everyone that I, that I evaluated had these three pieces. And so having those three, so for example, you and I, here's how lively this, this works. Right now we're having a conversation, right? So the ethos here is, do you find me credible to talk about government contracting? Yes, because I've been a former contracting officer, right? So there's the ethos part. The pathos is, do you and I like, to, like talking to each other? Is, is this enjoyable to listen to? Like, what's my reputation? Do I come across like a jerk, right? Do people actually want to listen to us talk? That's the pathos. And the logos is 445 episodes, and in your case, 18 years. Like, there's the logo. So even in this conversation we just had, right there is ethos, pathos, and logos. And those pieces, the way that I would word it, I think, is that we don't realize we're looking for them, which is why, you know, it's a 2,000-year-old idea that's <laughs> still really valid. Yeah, it's funny. I read a fair amount. Uh, and every now and again, I go back to, you know, the Plato dialogues and then some of Plato's stuff and some of Aristotle's stuff. Not frequently, but I still do it. And it's amazing how much validity of their thoughts plays in our lives now. So I, I'm really glad that you uh, you came up with this because... Lord knows I never would have thought of it and not likely any other contracting officer would have thought of it because they all have business degrees, right? Uh, <laughs> I guess I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good point. Yeah. The, the ability to, to, to figure things out and connect dots is that's, that's what I see as my role in GovCon. Like that's one of the things I, a lot of our content, a lot of our episodes, a lot of our training is, is metaphors like this. Cool. Uh, and hopefully we'll run across a few more. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Kevin and I are going to take a quick break and be back right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here with Kevin Jans, who is president of Skyway Acquisition. You can find Kevin on LinkedIn or at skywayacq.com. Uh, I suggest you do so. Look for the podcast there. It's very cool. I was a guest once upon a time myself. Um, <laughs> and it was fun then, and it's fun again. So you help companies with their proposals. So let's go back to your old hat as a contracting officer. And by the way, we should mention that, you know, when you were at McDill, uh, you were a contracting officer at SOCOM. And before Correct. that, your your contracting time at the Air Force, you did some pretty big things, too. So you, you've uh, done the uh, contracting work for some really significant projects. And I don't know about you, but I get inquiries all the time from the blind and semi-competent on, hey, I have this thing that, you know, NSA needs, that SOCOM needs. Uh, I have this idea for a backpack, and it'll only add 18 pounds to uh, an operator's bag. Uh, <laughs> true story. Uh, Not surprising at all. Yeah, I've seen them too. Yeah, so let's go back to your old hat and do proposal do's and don'ts, please. So the, the, the biggest one to me, and there's a big picture of this and a small picture. The, the biggest one, again, I go back to know your customer. When I was buying major systems like aircraft, like Air Force Two, I, by the way, I was very lucky that I, I touched a lot of cool stuff in 16 years. I, I worked on major aircraft systems and phased array uh, radar systems that, that track that 
incoming F sixteen. Yeah, you know, there were all kinds of different systems for for training on aircraft and and electronic systems and weapon systems of all kinds of different types. And then at SOCOM, I got to touch smaller stuff like body armor, professional services, like you know, like instead of hundred million dollar contracts, million dollar contracts. Same concepts apply here, but the idea of something some people think, oh, just because you work these big programs, you don't understand X. Or likewise, because you've only been an operational contracting officer, you only understand X. Understand that contracting officers touch a lot of stuff. And regardless of which layer they're in, they expect you to understand their customer. And it goes back to that targeting thing. And I, I will foot stomp that first in every conversation is that the example of, well, I have this backpack that, that SOCOM should want. How, how do you know they would want it? And, and it's funny, you say 18-pound backpack. The first thing you should know is that the last thing they want to do is put more weight on these people to carry stuff, right? Right out of the gate means you don't understand them. So it's simple things like that because those, those things go to the government customer has a problem. The government contracting officer is looking for a contract to solve that problem. If you're not aware of the problem, if you're not willing to Google it, I mean, it's not hard to find a lot of like to really understand. A lot of agencies, they have a small business director that is exactly there for this purpose. This to help you understand this is the problem we were trying to solve. What an RFP is really telling you, this is the problem that we're trying to solve. Here's how you win the work. But at the end of the day, a contract is not a means to an end. A contract is a means to solve a problem for a government customer. And to understand that government customer, you've got to target. So that's my first thing. Regardless of who you're, which agency, whether it's large contracts or small, that was the common theme that I noticed that certain companies talk to us when we we're selling that or trying to buy a particular large system. And other folks would talk to us when we were trying to buy, I don't know, a, a dry suit for Navy SEALs, but they were still targeting. And again, I didn't realize that as a contracting officer, but the ones that won, it's because they targeted. So that's my first point. Okay. And the, the second point goes back to this idea of the ethos, locos, and pathos. Now we're into the weeds of, 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 of a big proposal, do and don't, is the ethos of show me you can actually do the work. Do you have the credibility, Right. What I don't want to hear is all of the, what I call it icing instead of cake, is you put a lot of stuff in your proposal that doesn't answer any questions, that it's about you, it's about your history, you've got five, and I've seen this, five pages on the history of your company. While that's interesting, it's not relevant. It's not, it's not that's icing, right? Or spending a lot of time telling me great stories that are how, how great you've done, but are we doing this to solve a problem? Is this attached to the problem that we're trying to solve? As, as an agency, there's a fifth evaluation criteria that we actually ask for all those things. So this concept of icing versus cake, that's when we do a red team review, you, know, you go through the compliance, compelling, you know, consistent, all that stuff. One of the things that we focus on, are you more icing than cake? Because if you're, if you're just polished this proposal, you have to polish it to a point. I get it. Just sending somebody a, a really bland cake, that's not going to work either, but there's a point that you have to be careful you don't cross. And that's a big do or don't for me is have somebody who's, who's not helped you build it, who can look at it and go, this has a lot of blah, blah in it. It's all icing. Like this doesn't answer the, pro the actual problem for the customer. One, one of my favorites is the story of the company. So again, while that's interesting, relate that story to how it helps the customer. How does it solve the problem? Tie that story. And this is one of the specific do's and don'ts. Do tie your story to how it serves the customer. Like you'll notice that when I say I made 445 episodes, okay, that's novelty, interesting, right? But for me to say I've got 445 episodes that are specifically recorded by at least one, if not two, former contracting officers to help bring context to GovCon, that's an explanation of what it does. That's the kind of language you want to put in your proposal. I saw so many proposals, hey, we do this. And, I, and as the evaluator, I'm looking at this going, 
you're giving me homework. You're making me map what you do to the requirement, which is, by the way, why a compliance matrix is <laughs> so useful. Like what you say, we've met this requirement by doing this. That's another do is you're tying what you do to what we actually asked for. And the reason for all that is it goes back to that ethos. It's like, I want you to solve my problem. Show me you can solve my problem. Because otherwise, if you're not tying it to the individual problem, what you're trying to do is say, look how great we are. And that's the pathos piece, right? While that's useful, I should be able to see that through your CPARs, through your marketing, through a lot of the things, through your past performance, through other things that you have. But one of the things I see a lot of in proposals is a, a, a very much a, a story about, hey, this is how great we are. For me, for me to tell you, hey, Mark, have me on your podcast because we have, we have eight, well, actually, we have 11 former contracting officers. That's nice. But how does it help Mark? <laughs> Mark doesn't want to talk about that, right? That's the, the, that simple connection to what do you actually do and how does it help the customer? Seems really obvious. But when, you, when we do a lot of red team reviews, it's one of the first things we see is that tell them why, why, why do they care? The world doesn't need more words. <laughs> it doesn't need more content. It needs targeted content. It needs you to, the, the evaluators need you to put the dots really close together. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. In a weird way, we talked about this when I was on your show. But, <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> which is why I wanted you here. And I guess the, the big kind of wrap-up point here is that this concept of having a understanding of your overall customer and then not having that blah, blah in there, then being able to actually explain your story in a way that they'll be able to do something with it. I need to be able to say, okay, how do I copy and paste and put this into an, an, an evaluation report? Because one of the things that I didn't realize that industry didn't know was what I call evaluator fatigue. Is that if we get five proposals or, okay, 20. <laughs> so you get a lot of proposals, right? When you, you have to get through them. Expectation is, okay, the proposals have come in. Now we're going to evaluate them. Industry is out there waiting. And, and, and frankly, go back to the point of the, of the overall uh, effort here. The customer is waiting for us to award something. So the expectation, the customer is helping to evaluate the proposals. We're working our way through these proposals. Let's say you had five that you're trying to get through. Well, going through one or two a day, by the third or fourth day, you're, you're gassed. Even if they're 20 pages. But if they're 50 or they're even more, right, it's a lot of, of, uh, of rote stuff to go through. So you get into that idea of go back to if there's icing, there's a lot of icing and no cake. Where is my answer? <laughs> Where is the answer whether or not you can do this, right? That creates evaluator fatigue. So my, my third and final point on this do's and don'ts is don't create evaluator fatigue because it's a compounding effort. Unless you're submitting a sole source proposal, they're evaluating more than one, maybe a lot more than one. And so what happens is that they may be hearing somewhat of the same story over time, which I guess that, that, that's unavoidable to some extent, depending on you know, if, you're, if you're competing on for them to do the same work. But the compounding impact of that is by the third or fourth day, I'm, I feel like I've been reading the same stuff and, it, and I get even less tolerant of how the, the proposal is written to tell their story as opposed to solve our problem. And I, I get a lot of pushback on this because on one hand, it's like, well, that's not really fair. What if I'm the fourth evaluator or the fourth proposal evaluated? I, I get that. There's a difference between the first one and the fourth one evaluated, but they got to put them in order somehow. So this is going to happen. So if you're aware of not creating, either starting the proposal fatigue or the evaluated fatigue by giving them a, a, a very thick proposal full of all kinds of blah, blah, and, and has a whole lot of icing and doesn't have organized thoughts and the ethos and pathos and logos aren't obvious, right? So now you've created the fatigue and then they're going to remember that because you're the first one. So the next one comes in and it's lighter and they're like, oh, that's much easier to read. Or 
let's say you're the fourth one and they're already tired and the other three that they've seen are full of all this icing and they're full of all the extra unconnected dots. And all of a sudden here's your light proposal where all the dots are connected. That's why that the concept to think about your evaluator, think about the person who, because they're they're humans until we AI this thing out, which I don't see is going to happen for a while. These are going to be humans reading your, reading your actual text, understanding how to connect the dots in your proposal. And to do that with four or 20 proposals over weeks is it, it can get exhausting and being aware of that is something I thought industry knew, but I guess not. <laughs> so it's one, one of the, the biggest things we do in red team reviews is walk them through this concept of you're, you're creating evaluator fatigue by actually having them read through this whole two pages about your company first. You can put it at the end because they might still care about it. If you have room in the proposal, that's fine. But starting with that story that they can't connect to why it helps their customer is, is a non-value-added exercise for them. Got it. So you, you mentioned AI very briefly there. Do you see that playing a role on the evaluation end in the near term, or is that still, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff out there on AI right now. Yeah. Um, so near term, just because it's growing so fast. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't even using any AI tools, I don't know, six months ago. And now I've, I've kind of built it into some of the things we do automatically. So yeah, I think near term, it, it is going to be part of the story. The challenge becomes, and this, I've had this conversation with a couple of folks. So what's happening is you have folks who are helping to write AI to create RFPs. So now we can create our RFPs faster. Nobody seems to be concerned about that yet. That sounds dramatic, but it doesn't impact anybody's job. So they're not worried about it yet. Then you get to the point where, okay, now you're evaluating the RFP in order to build a compliance deck and actually start to build a proposal. AI can help with that. No problem. That's not impacting anybody yet. Then you get to the point where you're actually writing the proposal using AI. There's software that'll do that for you, which allows you to crank out more proposals. Okay. Well, we've created a daisy chain here, right? Like those are steps in the process. And we, we talk about those in our time zones. So we get to the fourth zone, the selection zone. Now, now I'm telling you, oh, you lost this contract because the AI told me you didn't have this piece in here. Oh, I don't like that. That's the feedback I'm getting. It's like, it's one thing to write it. It's one thing to write the RFP, write the proposal, that kind of stuff. But when you tell me I lost because the computer told you so, hmm, that's kind of like getting a picture of your red light camera. And you're like, well, I wasn't really there. That It's a different conversation. <laughs> so until we get past that piece, and that's what I'm, I'm frankly, as this, is a, this is a total, you and I just went on a tangent. This is one of the things I'm concerned about is that you can create RFPs faster. You can create proposals faster, but you can't evaluate them faster unless you're going to use AI. And you got to ask yourself, if you're a proposer, if you're a company trying to win work and AI is decide, effectively deciding whether or not you were compliant on your 50-page proposal, are you comfortable with that? And so far, people aren't because, again, it's, that's how they eat because whether or not they win, that, that's, job, that's their job, right? That's very different right. than a contracting officer putting on an RFP five minutes faster. That, that's good for the contracting officer. So that's the big question to answer in the world of proposals and AI right now. Okay, cool. I like that. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Kevin and I will return right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Kevin Jans of Skyway Acquisition. You can find Kevin at skywayacq.com or on LinkedIn, J-A-N-S. Kevin, talk about the three deciders, please. So the three deciders is a concept we came up with I don't know, about seven years ago, I guess. 
Uh, it's just one of those ideas that once you see it, it, it helps you understand how the process of awarding contracts work. And so the idea of the three deciders is that there are three groups of people that are involved in the decision process. So it's very rarely one person. It's groups of people. And so there's one group that is the economic decider. There's a group that's the customer. And then there's a group that's the contracting officer. In small contracts, these could be individuals, but oftentimes it's groups. And to let you know how this works, right? The economic decider is going to decide if something's going to be bought. They're in, in, in a military speak, that's the, the, the basically that's going to be like the, the acquisition executive that decides if this program is going to be purchased, right? And then the customer, in, in military speak, that would be the, the requiring activity, right? That's the one who, who wants the stuff. They need the service. They need the cybersecurity software. They need the body armor, whatever, right? And then the contracting officer is responsible for how to take the money from the economic decider and get what the customer needs. Of course, they go through industry to do that, but you get to point the three deciders here are the economic decider, the customer, and the contracting officer. And so to, to show you how real this is, when you and I are buying a car, we're all three. We have the money, we're buying the car for ourselves, and we can sign the contract or lease, right? So we're all three. We're, we have, we're the economic decider, we're the customer, and, and we're the procurer. Well, imagine now that we're buying it for our spouse. Well, now we may be the, the economic decider because we've set a budget for it, but it's their car. So now they're the customer, but then we're still signing the contract, right? So these three deciders, like if you're, if you're buying a stick of gum in line at the grocery store, you're all three of them instantly. You got the money, you want the gum, you know how to get it. So these three deciders are everywhere. The difference here, why it's worth talking about in the GovCon space, is in private companies, the three deciders are a little different because the economic decider would be like the CEO, for example. If you're building a new building, the CEO decides if the building's going to be built. And then the, the COO or maybe the division manager who has the most employees in that building is going to be the customer because they're the one that's going to be in the building, right? And then the procurement team will coordinate the competition and the overall contract award. So there's those three deciders again. Here's the big difference that in a private company, the procurement person or people, they work for, for some, one of the other two groups. They usually work for this, either for the COO or maybe for the legal office or even for the finance office, right? So the procurement folks work for one of the other two in government contracting doesn't work that way. The contracting officer does not work for the other two. And that's why oftentimes the contracting officer either can be seen as, or actually can be a roadblock. Because when the customer comes to me and says, hey, I want to buy this, I got money from the economic decider, buy it from this company, they can't talk me into doing a sole source that I can't justify, especially if I have to publicly put it out to the world. They can't talk me into buying it on a, through a contract vehicle using a time materials contract when this is a commercial service that I can clearly buy from fixed price. They can't talk me into that. Whereas if the three deciders are in a private company, the CEO says, buy this this way, they work for them. Those are the things I thought industry knew. And so a contracting officer will often get you know, vilified because they're not moving the process quickly enough or they're not doing it the way that the customer wanted. What we talk about is educating the customer so they understand what the contracting officer can and can't do. So we coach a lot of our clients on talk to the customer about what the contracting officer has to go through before you decide, oh, well, we can sole source this to this company or we can just buy this product or we can just buy this software or we can use a brand name or equal, like there's steps involved in those and understanding those steps makes the three deciders function much more effectively. This concept we, is comes up in almost all of our podcast episodes. Um, the basic one is way back on uh, episode 118 that we talked about this originally, but it's also one of our hall of fame episodes. We have 12 hall of fame episodes that are on our contracting officer podcast.com. And this is one of the, the key ones. Cool. A lot of, 
contracting officers decide that, no, we're going to make this small or vice versa. You know, it's going to be a set aside. There's not two available contractors. What precipitates that? Again, it goes back to the customer is going to decide what they want. The economic decider is going to decide if we're going to get it. And the contracting officer's responsibility is how. That's the how. So we call that, that's the acquisition strategy. So what, what precipitates that in simplest terms is, frankly, FAR Part 7 <laughs> that says you, you will, you'll come up with an acquisition plan. It's a written acquisition plan on contracts in, in the millions. But realistically, a written acquisition plan, in air quotes, can just be you know, a spreadsheet. It can be steps on, on, a, on a Word document. You have to have some kind of a plan. Part of that process, and for those of you reading along in the FAR, if you want to see what it looks like, go to 7.105, and it's the contents of a written acquisition plan. And you'll see things in there like, is this a small business set aside? How much competition is there going to be? What is the contract type? What are the security requirements? That's what precipitates all this. And the person who makes those decisions under the three decider bucket is the contracting officer. And to be clear, they're very rarely making that decision in a vacuum. And frankly, they never should be (laughs) making it in a vacuum. They should be learning from the customer. For example, how am I going to know whether this is a commercial item? I can Google it, but wouldn't it be better if industry talked to the customer and had a conversation about, here's why it's commercial. And then that turns into a commerciality determination they may even have on their website that then is given to the contracting officer. And the contracting officer can choose to use it or not. But that, that's where this path starts of, okay, this is a commercial item. Multiple companies do it. Therefore, it can be awarded under FAR Part 12. And all, now I'm down this path of I can use FAR 13.5. I can award it using some acquisition procedures, even though it's a $5 million action. All that process starts by looking in, in FAR Part 7. It's like a Plinko board. You know what a Plinko board is? You know, you put the little hockey puck at the top and it it goes through back and forth through the pegs. Same idea. You drop it in one part of the Plinko board and where it goes is dependent on what happens. That's acquisition planning. And that's the part the contracting officer is responsible for. Okay. For those who haven't heard Kevin's podcast before, him bringing up 7.105 is illustrative of something that happens on every episode because he gets real excited when he says, I have to reference the FAR here. So I was waiting for it, Kevin. I was waiting for it. (laughs) We have a quality control program uh, that we use for our podcast. And there's like, there's seven items in there. But one of the key ones is, do we have a FAR reference? Because both government and industry use our podcast. And it's nice that it's Kevin's opinion and nice that it sounds right. But show me like where in the regulations to say we can do this. And so that's really important. And frankly, one of the other ones that I really like is you have to laugh out loud. Like there has to be something in the podcast that was funny enough to laugh out loud. Because if government contracting isn't any fun, then it's not nearly as interesting to do. You and I have laughed a couple of times in this, in this episode. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, and, and we laughed a lot when I was on your show. So exactly. uh, we'll, we'll leave it go at that for right now. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Kevin and I will be back to wrap up right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. Uh, it's it's a shame you guys can't hear the outtakes here, but you can't. So we'll we'll recap a little bit of it. Um, I want to know the best places for newbies and and experienced people to network and learn. So take it in any direction you want. So this is a interesting topic because net, network and learn are two different things. Um, if, if you're, if you're looking to learn, there are lots of other resources, uh, depending on how you learn, uh, that, that, that can be done remotely. They don't need to be actually at, a, at an event of any type, but networking helps to do it in person. 
The problem is you got to keep it small. You have to be able to have individual, like maybe five people you can meet at a, at a conference that you spend a couple of days at that you're really going to be able to build a relationship with. Because the idea of networking isn't just to collect business cards. I mean, you, I've got 12,000 connections on LinkedIn. Okay, I'm, I'm networking, right? But I'm not building relationships yet. So if you're going to be going to conferences, my, my approach is, is a much more of a less, less but better. Is like, what are you trying to accomplish there? You know, pick, pick the, the type of person that you're looking to network with as opposed to just meeting with people. If, if it's a social event, I mean, again, I, I go, I'll go to an event like a, the, the podcasters. There's a, there's a Florida Podcasters Association. I'm not going there to learn about podcasting. I just like hanging out with the people. It's a social event. That's different. But from a networking perspective, from a business perspective, you're trying to connect with people who can actually connect you with business. Think less but better. The time it takes you to have a, 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 a small meeting at a, at a round table with the small business director at the agency you're targeting is much more valuable than just going to an event and handing out your, your business card at every booth you can possibly come to. Cause that, that, that's that idea of spending a, a lot of time in person. You have to target that because that's where the, the, the relationship can be deeper. But what I've noticed is that folks will a lot of times spend more time getting themselves in, in front of lots of people. And so my best recommendation, not, again, for the learn and for the network is LinkedIn. And again, it's a targeted strategy, right? If you go onto LinkedIn and spam everybody, you're going to annoy them. Just like in, in everything else in life, if you try and like when you're getting spam mail from in, in your mailbox, you're throwing it out. Okay. But again, look at LinkedIn can tell you who are the folks that I would, that I should be networking with. Who's following me? Who has the kind of information that I need? Who do I have the kind of information that I can help with the information that I have? That information is there. The, the context is there. So I would recommend folks spend more time. Make sure I say this right. I don't, I don't just want to say spend more time on LinkedIn. Spend more toward intentional time on LinkedIn. And, and so, by the way, the word of the year for Skyway is intentional. <laughs> this is an exactly, exact example of why that is. Is that I'm not trying to connect with 500 people for the sake of 500 people. Who I'm trying to help is right right now our, our podcast is targeted to newer contract specialists and contracting officers and then business development folks who are relatively new to the government space or folks who are looking for more portable mobile training because they can listen to our podcast like right, you know, in their hand right not everybody wants those things so the content that we have the conversations that we have the people that i'm connecting with i, I i'm intentional about actually helping them and that's an important factor. I'm not intentional about selling them something. I'm intentional about helping them. The outcome of that will be able to become a client. But if you have this intentional approach of, of being able to help someone, that is much, oh, the word is easy, but it sure feels like it's the right word. It's much easier to do on LinkedIn than if you go to a conference with 5,000 people and you just start walking around. So, yeah, we, you you mentioned Sofa when we were chatting before this segment and that used to be a uh, uh, let's just call it a smaller event. It's it's the special ops uh, uh, event down in Tampa, and uh, it has evolved into I don't know how many thousands of people come, but it's evolved into a three ring friggin' circus. It is a huge event with, and if you if you know what you're looking for, here, here let me zoom out for a second. The intended purpose of that event is to educate the government folks on all the capabilities that are that exist 
with, with, with the special operations vendors. I'm oversimplifying this, right? You want to have interaction between the two, but you go there and you see all of the things that are possible, right? So it is, it is an expo as much as it is an event. But to your point, it's a huge event with, I don't know, yeah, it's probably, it's, it spills out into, into the, the entire convention center and then in, in there, they have boats parked out front that have people in them. It's a whole thing, right? So from a volume perspective, you're going to see a lot of humans, but who are you trying to connect with? Who are you trying to, who, who are you trying to learn from? Who are you trying, who are you trying to teach something to? If you don't have that intentional strategy, you're going to spend a lot of time having conversations that don't go anywhere. And if, if your goal is to just socialize, well, good on you. That's not my goal in business. <laughs> Right. So one of the ways you can leverage LinkedIn for an event like Sophic or any other event is to announce ahead of time that you will be at this particular event. And these are the types of people you want to meet or these are the specific people I want to meet. So I do a post on LinkedIn, say I'm going to, you know, AFSIA Homeland Security. I'm going to Sophic and I'd really like to meet tag this person, tag this person, tag this person. So I'm being intentional there. I'm leveraging LinkedIn, but I'm going to spend my ultra valuable time out of the office. And um, like you, I, I just don't go to many events anymore unless I'm a speaker. And you don't even accept all of the speaking gigs that you get. Correct. I mean, there, there's a lot to be said for having this, this deeper relationship with those few people on LinkedIn to say, I, I would like to meet with you in person. Like, for example, when you and I, we still haven't met in person, but one of these days we're going to be speaking at the same event and we're going to make a point on LinkedIn of, hey, I want to make sure I meet with you. But that's what less but better looks like, is that I'm not trying to just be there. I'm being there and being intentional about actually having a conversation with somebody in person. And, and you're right. I, I've, I've gotten to the point where, well, that sounds, that sounds arrogant. I, I have realized that the best value I can bring to GovCon is the podcast, the content, the training, and I need time away from conferences and in my office to create that content. And so if I take every speaking engagement, I'm not able to help as many people because I'm only helping the ones that I meet with. And so that's the intentional piece of it. And it, it five years ago, I didn't see that as clearly, uh, but, but now I, I really do that. I can't, I can't make a podcast a week for 10 years if I'm at a conference every week. Right. It's uh, there, there, there is a trade-off. There's a major trade-off and time is the one thing that we don't get back. Correct. Can't make more of it. Can't buy it. Nope. 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 Um, So let let me get you to run for like two minutes on what kind (laughs) of things do you do on LinkedIn to generate interest in Kevin in Skyway in the podcast? So the, the, the biggest, I go back to the intentional thing, but w- what am I trying to help people with? Uh, so one of the things I specifically do is I, I use our podcast as a tool to answer a question for someone is I want, I don't say, I don't say, Hey, go look at my podcast to get the answer. I answer the question and somebody posts a question about how foreign military sales works, for example. Right. And I'll answer the question and then say, for more information, check out our podcast. And now I'm, I'm using it as a, as a resource for them. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Another way is create content that, and then this is targeted. This is, this is a very, it's very easy to get down a rabbit trail with this, but create content that people, there's, there's a, there's a, I think it's, I'll give it, I'll give it a credit too. I think it was, um, I think it was, uh, I can't think of who said it, but anyway, the idea of 
do something remarkable, meaning worth remarking on. So having and having a, a content that you've started a conversation around that something like AI, for example, I'm not just going to say, hey, what do you think about AI? My point of the evaluation of AI is the sticking point. And that's the part where I see the, the biggest challenge ahead. So have those kind of conversations on LinkedIn because you're looking for the people who actually want to talk about the same things that you do. And the best way to do that is just to start conversations. And the last thing I'll say is spend less time posting. After I just told you to post, I get that. But less time posting and more time talking to people. There's a, there's a whole section of LinkedIn called LinkedIn Messenger, right? You can actually talk to people. If they're connected to you and you have something to talk about, that's how you build a relationship. So case in point, this morning, I probably talked to 50 different people who I think our podcast can help them. What are the odds of me hitting those 50 people at a conference and being able to actually have a conversation with them? They're pretty close to zero, right? So my biggest recommendation for LinkedIn is that, yes, you need to build the connections. Yes, you do the things that all the other people do, but have conversations. And I love it when somebody's on LinkedIn at the same time I am and we're having a real-time conversation about you know, pick a thing, right? I'm helping them with, with solve some puzzle. Platform has had become much more useful to our clients, to me, to just from a, from a functionality perspective. But that, that is the way I think you'll stand out is you focus on having one-on-one conversations, less but better. Yeah. Um, for, for those of you who know me, I do a lot of training on LinkedIn. Kevin and I did not plan this segment. It was going to be <laughs> uh, mistakes, uh, uh, or uh, best places for newbies to network and, and learn. And Kevin said, well, you know, I don't do a lot of that anymore. I use LinkedIn. So, jeez, uh, man, thanks. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Just that validates why you've been doing this so well for so long. Um, and, and the you know, there's a lot of things about LinkedIn that frustrates me, but it's still the absolute best place to build a network and to manage it and to communicate with it. Yeah. So... Final thoughts? I'm having trouble saying them down. Um, my, my final thought, I guess, is check out the ethos, logos, and, and pathos. Like, just Google it. It's been around for a long time. Um, I haven't done a, I'm probably going to do a training about that for our clients, uh, but it's one of those things that I, I realized that I, I need to share more of. And it's not, an, it's not an idea that I created. Obviously, Aristotle did. But being able to apply it will help you a lot, not only in your proposals, but also just in, in general communication. But one of the things I love about what we do is taking something really, really complicated and making it simple. And that's why like our acquisition time zones and the GovCon cube and the three deciders and this, this Aristotle concept. And, like I'm, I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time creating these metaphors to help people understand how to communicate with both sides. And the latest one is this, this Aristotle concept. So get familiar with what those pieces mean and you'll start noticing them. You'll start noticing like, Oh, that's why they don't sound like they know what they're talking about because there's, there's no logos. They have no like evidence. It's all their opinion and, and they're, they're charismatic and they really tell a great story, but there's no evidence. Like they don't have 12,000 connections to show they actually are saying something worthwhile on LinkedIn. There's That's no an there, example. There. Yeah, exactly. They're all icing and no cake. We're back to that. So there you go. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me, man. This has been a blast. Podcasting is not my day job. I operate at the intersection of thought leadership content and LinkedIn helping companies and individuals build subject matter expert positions in the federal market to build stronger pipelines and to build that network that Kevin's been talking about. So if you'd like to discuss this, drop me a line at markamtower@gmail.com or send me an email through LinkedIn. And 
please share this podcast with people who will benefit and like it on the podcast platform of your choice. And thank you very much for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 